Thank you, Livy Rose. That was beautifully read. Thank you guys for being here. It's lovely to see everybody. You're very welcome, as Scott has said earlier on. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Philippines and uh, over the next few weeks. It's a letter that was written. The letter writing is a lost art, um, but letters can be important. I have received some letters over the years from friends and family. There's something personal about them. The writer has gone to the bother of writing the letter and then posting it and sending it to me. So something very special about getting a letter. I know this day and generation, that's something that's maybe frowned upon or considered as not that important, but letter writing is special. I still have a letter when I was at primary school. I received it from my dad. He was playing cricket in Belfast, had a heart attack and ended up in hospital in the Royal. I was only primary school age. My mom wasn't able to drive, so I wasn't able to get down to see him. It was over my birthday, and he sent me a letter. It said, Master Gilbert Carson. I remember that very clearly. Um, and he wrote me a letter with his own handwriting. And it's beautiful to get that. It's something very special, and I still treasure it to this day. I have received small notes, letters, and cards from folk here in CE, and I treasure them greatly. Paul and Timothy writes to the church in Philippi, and we'll be studying this over the next few weeks. And it has in turn been forwarded to us here at Edenbury CE tonight. This letter is not just merely an ancient text, but in fact is intended for every church and every Christian in every generation. And our prayer is that we will again uh, with gain new confidence in our God and in his love as we study this letter together. So let's just pray together as we come to look at his word. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we just pray that you'd help us tonight, that as we study this book of Philippines, that you would just speak into our minds and hearts. Help me to have clarity of thinking and clarity of speech, that folk will understand what's been said. But I pray for your Holy Spirit that it will work in our minds and hearts. Be with each one of us, Lord, tonight as we hear your word as it applied to our minds and our hearts and into our lives. So, Father, protect us from the distractions of Satan and his evil one. Pray that, George, you just watch over us and help each one of us tonight, that we would know your hand upon us. Ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. First two verses says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, and deacons, they are the leaders of the church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, as he writes, Paul and Timothy, as he writes to this church, he wants to give them an accurate description of who he is in relation to them. And he also wants them to be clear understanding of who they are before God. Paul, in this first verse, describes himself and Timothy as servants of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul and Timothy had not the privilege of being in that room at that last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. He did not, they did not see Jesus take off his outer tunic. They did not see Jesus get on his knees to wash the disciples' feet. But they must have heard a lot about that. And Jesus in that situation gave them a description of how leadership should be done. It should be as a servant. And Paul assures these folk again that he is a servant a servant of Jesus Christ. I want to assure you that anyone who stands up here 
on any Saturday night is not here to rule or to reign over you in leadership, but is to lead as a servant of Jesus Christ and thus be a servant to each of you. In a well-known church in London, on the desk or in the, in the uh, uh, pulpit where the guys will speak from, there's a simple saying for every person who stands there and simply says this, we want to see Jesus. That's the congregation's plea. You may be famous, you may be smart, you may be trendy, but our plea and our need is that we want to see Jesus. And so we would endeavor to be true to that for you as well. We present Jesus and not ourselves. Forgive us if we get this wrong. You will always deserve better. We want to present Jesus Christ to you tonight. Now, Paul addresses the folk in these verses as saints, saints in Christ Jesus. It's an unusual phrase to use, but this is a phrase that Paul uses a lot in his letters to describe the Christian members of the church. They may not think a lot about themselves. They may feel small and often weak, but Paul addresses them the way God thinks about them, that they are saints. Now, the word saint is derived from the word holy, which means set apart. And he wants to emphasize to them that they are set apart from a polluted and evil world. But he wants them to be engaged in this world to live for God's glory. They are saints. As believers, we have been transformed from citizens of this evil world, which is so anti-God in its thinking and in its behavior, and be transformed into a relationship with Jesus Christ and to live for his kingdom. All that Christ is and all that he possesses belongs to us. All that Christ is and all that he possesses belongs to us. We are recipients as God's saints of what it says in verse 2, grace and peace, grace and peace. Paul, as he writes these words and knows that this church will read them, and then subsequently we hear this evening read them and hear them, Paul does not consider than just words that sound good and comforting. Now he explains that this is a blessing from God the Father and from Jesus Christ his Son. No, they come with all the kindness and love of our Heavenly Father to you and to me tonight. They come from all the authority of Jesus Christ who has risen from the grave and has defeated death and sin for us on the cross. They come to us tonight personally. Paul's prayer for these guys and our prayer for us tonight is that we will be more deeply rooted in our faith and more conscious of the grace and peace of God in our lives. When Paul writes this, he expects this to be the experience and therefore our experience as well. These are supernatural words and God wants supernatural things to happen in our minds and hearts. If we look at the letters of Paul, we will see that every letter starts with this phrase, grace to you, and every letter finishes with a grace with you. John Piper in his book suggests that this is because Paul, as he writes these letters, expects not through his wonderful writings or anything else of his own, but that he expects that God will honor this for us. As we come open-hearted 
and ready to hear from God. As we read his word, grace and peace will come to us. And like Paul, we can finish this evening knowing God's grace and peace is with me. Grace to you, grace with you. These are not just words. This can be a meeting with God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Savior. Paul elsewhere describes the effect of grace and peace upon our lives in Philippines chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. He says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the promise is that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When the world is against you, when friendships are difficult, when folk are out to, ca to cause you grief, when the hopes that you had do not come to fruition, when the diagnosis that you feared comes about, whatever it is, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. James chapter 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8, And God is able to make all grace abound in you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. What does this look like in people's lives? Just for a few moments, a man is going to share this with you on the screen. It started off, I think, here in Ireland, ended up in Scotland. He tells his story of God's grace and peace within his life. My name is Mes McConnell and I was born in the Republic of Ireland in the early 70s. Got quite a checkered family background. My dad um, had a difficult upbringing. His father um, killed himself and um, had, he had no relationship with his mother. Him and his brothers were split up around the world. I understand that one went to um, Scotland, one went to North America somewhere, and my dad went to Ireland, where I was born. So my dad got married early, that ended acrimoniously, and the fallout of that was both myself and my sister had nowhere to live, both parents, my, my dad had gone missing at that point, um, I understand he, he went over to England, my mother had run off with this other man and was left to my grandma and other family members to look after us. So between the ages of two and seven years old, I was traveling around Ireland, it was sometimes with my father, sometimes I'd be in care or a children's home. I don't have very many great details about that period of my life, but I do remember that it was quite tumultuous and nothing ever seemed to be settled. And then at seven years old, a, a major thing happened and my sister and I and my dad, we came to England. It was at the height of the troubles in Ireland in the, in the late 70s. And we got the ferry across 
and their life became a bit more complicated. So between the ages of 12 and 16 were, I would say, key, a key time in my life. Lots of events happened to me. So I got into trouble with the police for the first time. I was convicted of my first criminal offence for assault when I was 12 years old. At that point, I was, I'd just begun to start taking drugs. Then at the age of 13, 14, uh, one of my friends was stabbed to death in the chest. And uh, remember, he died. He just bled out in a car on the way to the hospital. That death troubled me, that event really troubled me. It made me think, where is my friend? Where's he, where's he gone? What's the point of life? And these were questions I began to ask. And nobody had any answers to these questions. And my conclusion was, well, there is no point to life. There is no hope. And therefore, I should just continue what I'm, what I'm doing. So now I woke up one day and I thought, you know, I want to get out of this lifestyle, so I got myself involved in a fraud in which we stole a couple of thousand pounds from a bank, walked into a bank and walked out with a couple of thousand pounds and then I got the first plane um, I could to Spain. The attempt was to try and find myself or discover the secrets of life or something with this um, with this money and then after a few months of that I was arrested and deported back to the UK because I was on the run from the police in the north of England I decided to go to the south of England I thought oh, well again I'll, I'll start a new life I was 19 years old I thought I'll start a new life I'll get my life together I'll get a job etc and I got down to the south of England that didn't last very long so I ended up homeless Properly this time, living on the streets, sleeping on benches, parked doorways, anywhere I could get my head down, desperately unhappy, desperately searching for some sort of meaning in life, but finding absolutely nothing. And at this point, about, around about 19, 20 years old, I, for the first time, I met a group of Christians. And one day these people turned up in cars, got out, and uh, they looked all Christian-y anyway, sort of squeaky clean with sort of centre partings and nice cardigans. And they said, oh, do you want to play a game of football in the, in the, the local gym, or soccer, as it's called in the US? And of course we wanted to play. And so these Christians began to talk. Began to talk about how I was separated from God because I was a sinner, how unless I confess my sin and put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and repented my sinful lifestyle that I would be spending eternity in hell. Well, obviously I didn't take too kindly to that message and I wondered who these people were, thought they could come into my life and start judging me and telling me how bad I was when I'd been beaten and abused and rejected most of my life. And so my friends and I disrupt, disrupted the meetings. We started shouting and swearing and threatening them and they threw rocks at their cars and basically ran them out of town on the first night. During this period, I got involved in a fight in a nightclub in which I stabbed a couple of men. And to be honest, I, I, remember, I remember stabbing them and standing, I could, have, I could have escaped, but I was just so messed up, so... My brain, my head was so all over the place. I just stood there and waited to get caught. And so I ended up um, 
going to prison, obviously, for my crimes. And then one day, these Christians came to visit me. There was two of them. And they traveled about 300 miles to visit me. And they actually just talked to me like I was a human being and not a pet project to sort of convert or something. And that impressed me. And then when I was due for parole, I went to see my probation officer and, 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 and the board of the board of the, the governors at the time. And because I had no address to be released to, I wasn't going to get a release date. And so I um, I contacted the probation and said, could you ask these Christ this Christian guy whether I could you know, stay at his house for a while just till I got myself somewhere to live and at least I'd be able to get out. And so this Christian man said, yeah, I'll do better than that. Why don't you come and live with me? God was drawing me, the Holy Spirit of God was drawing me towards Jesus at this point. And I was, I, I couldn't, I remember I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat properly. I, every time I woke up, I'd be thinking about Jesus. Um, I'm just, my whole, I was just disturbed. Jesus Christ had saved me from a life of hopelessness. He saved me from a mess completely, almost entirely of my own making. And I thought, right, I want to serve, I want to serve the Lord and I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Jesus Christ has completely transformed my life. Often people talk about me and the gospel, what the gospel means to me as an individual. But Jesus Christ has not only transformed my life personally, but socially as well. And so I ended up um, going to Bible college in the south of England. I was very good at telling people about Jesus, but I'd get to, you're a sinner, you're a scum sucker like me, you know, repent or you're going to hell, you loser. And then it wasn't, didn't have much more than that really. I married Miriam 14 years ago. I met her and uh, the Lord just gave me a wonderful wife. I have two wonderful children, Kezia, who's 11, Lydia, who's uh, nearly 10. Recently, uh, my eldest daughter was baptized. Um, her words, her opening words were, I was brought up in a Christian family. And for me, they were the greatest words that I could ever have heard. And it shows one thing, and it shows me this, that the gospel has broken through these barriers. When I look back at my family history and this just cycle of abuse and brokenness, and yet Jesus Christ has burst through that cycle and he's began a work of transformation that far exceeds anything that I could ever hope and dream of. And it's this same transformation that I want to see at community levels across Scotland in places that are desperately sure of the gospel. gospel wants to break through and transform lives. Philippines chapter 3, or chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul talks very personally about the feelings for these guys. Does he know these folk? Has he spent time with them? Acts chapter 16 
tells us that he does. So setting sail for Troas, we made a direct voyage to Sam, somewhere or other, and the following day, Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. <clears throat> and we remained in the city some days, and the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together, and one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshipper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said, what was said by Paul. A slave girl who possessed an evil spirit. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain for her fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. The owners were not very happy. There was loss of trade as a fortune teller. Riots started and Paul and Timothy found themselves in prison. Oh dear, a disaster, all is lost. And they've only arrived in Philippi. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open. He grew his sword. He drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourselves, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. What seemed to be the end was only the beginning for God. <clears throat> the jailer asked the best question that he or even we could ever ask. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So Paul writes to this church in Philippi, and I'm pretty confident in the fact that Lydia was there with her family. Also, there's a young girl who had been released from evil spirits. <clears throat> she would have been there. And of course, the jailer and his family, they would have been there, and I'm sure many more. Paul had a connection, a deep and intimate connection with these guys. Verse 5, he describes them as partners of the gospel. Partners in the gospel. We have in C gospel partners, just like Paul had. We have Cami and the girls in the church in Dublin, in Romania. They are gospel partners with us. We have gospel partners in Philadelphia with Pastor Jonathan and Joey and the church that is aptly named Grace and Peace Community Church. We have gospel partners in Malahide and Hoth with Alistair and Jude in Dublin. We have gospel partners in Senegal 
with Rab and Kyla and the family as they're just spending their first weekend in Dakar, in Senegal. And we have gospel partners with students and workers throughout the country. We have folk to pray for that together we will experience the grace and the peace of our God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says he holds them in his heart, and we in turn hold these folk and others in our hearts. We want the best for them. Paul says, verse 8, for as God is my witness, maybe we don't think of Paul as being very loving and affection, but he assures these guys how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Possibly Paul was not outwardly an affectionate guy, but because of Jesus Christ, he had a love for them, which he naturally would not have felt. They were gospel partners. The grace and peace of God had united them. But Paul, explained, but Paul goes on to explain to them how specifically he prays for them, that in fact his, this love would grow as it says in verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, with insight, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is not telling us just to know more stuff, but in fact, this is a love relationship that he wants us to know, to know God in an intimate way so that we come in a relationship with him, which is a relationship of love. To know someone is to spend time with them, not just in a crowded room, but in our own, with the, his word, sharing our fears, our hopes, our thanks, our opportunities, our friends and our families with our God. That's a relational knowledge. And like Paul, we will see growing in our lives an affection, a love for God, which we did not previously have. We become stronger and more determined in our faith. As well as having knowledge, we develop discernment. That's an ability to recognize what is good from what is sounds so good, but in fact is not often God-honoring, but is purely self-honoring. Don't forget what it says on that desk, on that pulpit. We want to see Jesus. I still very vividly remember at primary school getting homeworks returned with big red mark marks on it, often saying, could do better, sometimes saying good, usually saying poor or even very poor. Rarely did I ever see very good and hardly ever did I see excellent. But in these verses... That is what Paul wants us to look out for. God's work should read excellent. Why and how can that be? Because it says in verse 11, it's been done for the glory and praise of God. No matter what is said tonight, if it is done for my glory and my praise, it is not excellent. But if it's done for the glory of God and for Jesus Christ, then that is excellent. No matter how weak and feeble we may feel, it has been done who it has been done for his glory, then it becomes excellent. How does your life 
and mine get an excellent mark, we will be marked excellent with the label pure and blameless. And how on earth can that be? It comes because we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that is not our own, but comes through our gospel partnership with God our Father because of the work of his Son for you and me on the cross. And as always, to one end, to the glory and praise of our God. To summarize what we've been looking at this evening, we are saints. We're set apart by God to live for him. We are saints. We're set apart by God to live for him. We are blessed by God the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, to experience grace and peace. To experience grace and peace. We are blessed to have many gospel partners, both at home and throughout the world. We are encouraged to grow in a relational knowledge of our God and in discernment, enabling us to recognize things that are excellent because they are God-honoring. And finally, we will be marked as pure and blameless because of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. Let us pray together. Father, in a world of turmoil, in a world of sin, in a world of self-centeredness, in a world of lostness, where politicians strive to bring order, and it is so fickle and so easily lost, where nation is against nation, where people are against people, you call us, Father, to be your people in this world. We're called to be saints. We're called to be set apart, not to be influenced by this world, but actually through your spirit to influence this world for your good. That this world would know something of your grace and your peace that only comes through Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that you've given us an opportunity to be gospel partners with people. We thank you for the gospel partners that we have throughout the world. We thank you for the partnership that we have with our friends that are sitting beside us maybe this evening. We partner with them in the gospel because the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ that we want to share with our friends and with our family. And also, Father, I want to thank you that you describe as being pure and blameless, which is so contrary to what we feel about ourselves. And Lord, this is not because of ourselves, but it's because it's Jesus Christ. Father, may each one of us this evening know the blessing of our Heavenly Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, upon us, that we would know the grace the love that is not deserved will know this grace upon our lives and will know this peace that passes all understanding even in this term difficult and tumultuous world that we know your peace 
So, Father, I pray your blessing would come upon us, your grace and your peace would come upon us, not because I've said these words, but because, Father, this is your desire for us, that we would know your grace and your peace. We may feel we're too young or too old or too stupid or too sinful to experience this, but, Lord, I pray every soul here this evening would know your grace and your peace upon them. Maybe some for the very first time in their lives as they come to faith, as they cry to you for help. We thank you for what we saw in that man's life. We thank you for that transition in his life. We pray your blessing upon him and his family. We thank you for that evident picture of his dear daughter coming out of baptism and be able to say, I'm a member of a Christian family. Lord, these are precious things. I pray that every single one of us would know this preciousness of your love, your grace, your peace upon us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who does love us dearly and hasn't finished with any one of us yet. Amen.